Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Deborah. We've been nominated at the National Comedy Awards. Give us a vote by going to thenationalcomedyawards.com. Come to a live recording at King's Place this Thursday, 4th of November. One episode is like a later with Jules Holland, except a later with me and Grace Petrie. And Grace is going to be playing some of the songs from her charting new album and talking about them. It's going to be really, really fun. Uh, The other episode is going to feature Celia A.B., who is a brilliant French-Palestinian comedian. You must come if you can. And if you can't, you can join the live stream and you can watch that live or for 48 hours. You can go to kingsplace.co.uk or link straight through from the website. You can also come to a live recording at Soho Theatre, Tuesday the 9th of November. We'll let you know very soon who the guests are. And guess what? I'm doing a a one-hour stand-up comedy show called The Guilty Feminist Stands Up. Stuff that I don't necessarily want on the internet, but I'm very happy to tell you live. Uh, uh, The themes are coming out and going in. It's the 30th of November to the 5th of December. Tickets are selling fast for that. So go to SohoTheatre.com and get tickets ASAP if you'd like to come. Please come. And then I will be on tour in Australia and New Zealand, finally, from the 13th of July to the 27th of July. So get tickets now for cities all over Australia and New Zealand. Check the link in the show notes or go to guiltyfeminist.com. Don't miss out. And now, on with the podcast. I'm a feminist, Deborah. Mm. But, (laughs) this is going back about six months actually, but let's pretend it was last week. Last week, (laughs) I was at King's Cross Station and I noticed that there was a young lady who had noticed me. Say no more, okay? <laughs> and that never happens anymore because I'm too old. But there was a bit of me that was like, oh, what's going on here? And I thought, oh, I know what's happened here, Deborah. She's recognised me. as she's Because she's one of my gang, you see. And uh, I thought she's recognised this mid-level celebrity lesbian, okay? <laughs> well, well, not even mid-level, but anyway. <laughs> and uh, that's okay. That's what happens when you're... Uh, not quite famous. Okay, this shit happens to you all the time. And then she walked towards me, and I was like, oh no, this is going to be really awkward. 
because she's going to be gushing and telling me how gorgeous and wonderful I am. <laughs> and she did. She bloody well did. She <gasps> said, I think you're absolutely wonderful. I love your stand-up. And I just adore your podcast. And I'm coming to see you at the Edinburgh Festival soon. So it wasn't six months, it was two years ago. Um, <laughs> and she said, and um, I just, I just feel really sad to hear that you're, you're not single anymore. And I thought, hang on a minute, I haven't been single for ages. And then I sort of realised I hadn't really been listening to her because I'd been in the glow of this sort of adoration. And uh, I realised she thought I was Susie Ruffle. And firstly, I was like, I don't know anything like Susie Ruffle. And secondly, I thought, Susie Ruffle's 11 years younger than me. I'm not going to tell her I'm not Susie Ruffle. (laughs) And I bloody well didn't. So you just pretended to be the ruffle? Well, I kind of, by the point that it, it, it was... Too awkward. Yeah. It was too awkward because I'd been going, oh, yeah, great. And I thought, how can you think I'm Susie Ruffle? I don't think she'd ever seen Susie Ruffle live and she just thinks I'm Susie Ruffle. But anyway... Well, when people mix up people off the telly, they've seen you, they've seen the ruffle, they've just confused you in their mind, they think it's one or the other, and they've just pinned a name that they've seen on Rock the Week or Live at the Apollo on you. Yeah, but it was That's too many... Happened. I know, but I thought, maybe she does think it's me, but she doesn't know my name. But it was when she went, I'm just so sad to hear you're not single anymore. And I was like, I've been fucking single for years, love. I don't know what you're banging on about. Anyway, I should have corrected her and said, actually, I'm, as I was at the time, 44 years of age and I've got two children and I'm practically married and I don't know what you're talking about. But I didn't. I said, <laughs> mm, I know it is a shame, isn't it? <laughs> I think she had lesbian blindness. Do you know I had lesbian blindness with Greg Fleet? Do you know Greg Fleet, the Australian comedian? Yeah. Who had a conversation with me. This is back in Melbourne Comedy Festival 2011. Uh, We had this really long conversation. And Deborah, this is no word of a lie. Got to the end of the conversation and he went, so, uh, yeah, oh, no. No. Fuck. Fuck. I was like, what? He went, fucking it. I thought... Sorry, mate. I thought I was talking to Zoe Lyons. He says, I'm wondering where that tattoo had got to. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me, mate? You've just seen a lesbian and another lesbian, and you just think we're the same person because... Not because we look alike, but because you're lesbians, fucking what? Ah, this is embarrassing. I was like, yeah, it is embarrassing for you. But why did he... Why did you mention... I think halfway through the conversation I went, oh, I think you're confusing me because I'm not Zoe Lyons. And he went, ah, fuck. Yeah, I was wondering where that tattoo got to. Anyway, I was like... Oh, God. Yeah, anyway. More than once. Are there any lesbians in the audience who have been mistaken for other lesbians? Is this a common thing? Come on, at least your partner. You get told you're Sue Perkins. But people come up and go, you're Sue Perkins. Or do they go up to you and go... Sue Perkins. Or they've mistaken you for Would you like to touch my soggy bottom? <laughs> I mean, I'd take it. Sue Perkins is hot. Uh, I'd be, I'd be very, as are you. But equally, equally bake-off hot. Okay. I'm a feminist, but I may have objectified an audience member just then in order to avoid insulting an audience member by implying that Sue Perkins was hotter than she was. <laughs> I'm now hitting on an audience, but I can't really see. Her face is entirely obscured by the largest mask I've ever seen. I'm just 
now, and she's in an audience, it's dark down there, I don't know what her, and why am I rating attractiveness from lesbians from one to ten? Why am I lining lesbians up and saying, you're more attractive than her, you're equally attractive? This has got out of hand. I retract everything. I think I'm going to cancel the guilty feminist. I don't think I'm a good enough feminist to be doing the show. I just take it all back. You and Sue Perkins are both glorious, hot women and should be in a relationship together. Can I join? Can it be a threesome? Okay, you did. I wish I could stop talking now. I can't. Deborah, I can't you did not talking. take it back. You've just can't. doubled down on it. Yeah. Okay, stop talking. Okay, I'm really, yeah, you do one. You do one quickly. Okay. Hurry up, hurry right. up. I'm a feminist, but um, I once drove a van. Uh, has anyone ever driven a van before? Oh my God. How much fun is it driving a van? Woo, it's a lot of fun. I drove a van from uh, where I live in Brighton to McCombeth Festival. Uh, I was known as MacFest. All right, it's just let's say MacFest. Um, and I parked it. It's a very long journey, and I parked at a service station. And I went to go get myself a coffee, and I came back, and my van was no longer where I parked it. The van had gone. No. No, the van wasn't there. What? What had happened was the van was now... 200 metres behind where the van should have been, up a sort of curb next to a car. And I hadn't put the handbrake. And I ran towards my van, and there was a man standing next to my van. He looked very cross, and he said, Is this your van? And I said, Yes, it is my van. And he said, Well, you haven't... You haven't, you haven't put the bloody handbrake on and you nearly, you nearly went right into my bloody car. And I said, I'm not even the driver. <laughs> I said, I'm afraid that's my boyfriend. <gasps> I will be happy. And he went, well, you can bloody well tell him. He went, Look. I said, I tell you what, I'm going to go and get him. And I hid in the service station. <laughs> for 35 minutes until he left. <laughs> You blamed a mythical boyfriend. I blame mythical boyfriends a lot. I've done it a lot in the past. And I will continue to do it into the future because that's what the patriarchy deserves. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but today I had to look at the production shots for something I was producing. um, And the picture was of two women, neither were me. And the first thing I said was, oh my God, they look so smiley and attractive. And the male photographer said, and powerful and excellent at their jobs. (laughs) But they did look smiley and attractive. They did look smiley and attractive. They did. I wasn't saying they didn't also look powerful and good at their jobs. But he went, oh, cheer up, love. Might never happen. Oh, you should smile more. Like, he made so much fun of me for saying they looked smiley. And I I did see that that was a problem because it's quite a serious piece that they're doing. And uh, I was like, no, no, no. And he was like, no, attractive's the main thing that they need to look. They're women in the business. That's true. I was like, no, I take it back. But it was just, I really loved them. And I was just happy for them to look smiley and attractive. Because I want to look smiley and attractive. Okay, fine, whatever. Cheer (laughs) up. It might never happen. Shut up. (laughs) You do yours. Uh, I'm a feminist, but I was having a coffee with a friend who I hadn't seen since before uh, the pandemic. And um, as... She was talking. I put my hand on my chin, and I just felt one of those puby chin hairs. And then all I could think of is, oh, my God, I've got a puby chin hair. How can I get rid of that puby chin hair? 
I wonder if I can pull that pee chin hair out with my two fingers. Would it be weird to ask the waiter for tweezers? <laughs> Basically, I have... We got to the end of the conversation, and bear in mind, I haven't seen her for two years. I've still got no fucking idea what she said to me, because all I was thinking about was the pubic chin hair on my chin. Were you able to leverage it out? No, I, 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 not until I got home, because it was one that really you needed to give it a good old fucking tug. Yeah? You know, I just want to say, where's the support group for the goatee, okay, on a woman. No one's talking about it. I want to have a chat about this another time, yeah? Because it's all very well going, oh, yeah, I get the occasional chin here. It's like a fucking pube. You could, you could cut cheese with it. Is that... I don't want that. Okay, fine. I'm a feminist, but... I'm a feminist, but... I decided today that my drag queen burlesque name should be, should be misgiving because... I tell everyone yes to everything and then regret it <laughs> so thoroughly that it works. That's why we're doing this. Both, that it works both when I volunteer and when I'm saying, shouting at the sky, why the fuck did I say yes to this? I've got too much on. Misgiving. It's good. I think you'll agree it's good. It's strong. I like it. It says it exactly says what it is on the tin. Yeah. I like that. Absolutely. Which is what a drag I think I might do, do a show called Misgiving. I think it's good. I, I mean I don't know what the show is yet, but I'll design it around the title. Many times I've come up with a title and then not saying no written a show. Sorry, my Sorry. puffy sleeve is distracting me, so I just missed what you said. <laughs> this it's so Anne Boleyn, this top. You're I'm never gonna much. wear this again. <laughs> I love I mean I personally that. love it, but I can see that you're just a little bit uncomfortable with puff I sleeves. I need to and, a, and a sort of Elizabethan rough neckline. <laughs> I keep saying Elizabethan, which is why it's making it feel really not my vibe. <laughs> Live from King's Place in London. Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Jen Brister, and we're talking about saving the NHS. Oh, thank you, Deborah. I am late. Did now, anyone Jen, notice? You, I don't think so. Have you? Were you held up by patriarchal train systems? It was the patriarchy that stopped me. Um, <laughs> and also the fact I was wearing noise-cancelling headphones and I didn't hear them say that the platform had moved oh. whilst on the toilet. Who wears well, headphones that... on the toilet, Deborah? <laughs> me. Yeah. Um, I do. Well, I think that's a patriarchal uh, strategy, isn't it? To keep feminists from getting where they need to be going. <laughs> They don't put it up on the board. They just sort of go... Have, they just look around. They see feminists with headphones in. They don't think about us. They know They know I'm there for that train. I'm but, not going to wherever else they go to in other places. I'm going to London. Of course I am. Look at me. <laughs> I don't know what these puffy things are about. I'm so out of my depth with this top. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> I have to say, it is... It's, it's not on brand at all. It's not, it's not on not, brand, Brister, but I I'm like it. Just, I'm going lateral. I'm going, what's it? I'm going, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm pushing the boundaries. That's what I'm doing. 
It's pushing the boundaries the of lesbian fash, okay? It's got a touch of the Bridgertons about it, if you It has got a bit Bridgerton, and when I went to buy it, I thought, do you know what? I really like that check thing, but in the picture, you know, sometimes when you buy things, in the picture, it was like, it was unclear about this shoulder thing. Oh, you bought it online. That makes a lot of sense. And then it arrived, and my, girl, yeah. and my girlfriend said, you're never going to wear that. And I said, uh, I am, actually. And so that's why I'm wearing it. So, um, so you're wearing it to prove a point to your partner. That is quite lesbian. That's very lesbian, actually. Yeah, that's it's what a, we do. This is like, in this, your face. This is a passag puff sleeve. Yep. That makes more sense. Very passag, actually. You bought it because you thought it was houndstooth. It had a, it had a sort of checkered quality to yeah, it. Yeah, I like it. Because I know, I know you to be like, a woman of a check. I like a check, yeah. And you thought, oh, I'll, I'll get that check. What yeah. you didn't realise is it has a whole Anne Boleyn thing going on. <laughs> and when you're... Is it your wife or your partner? Well, let's... I mean, we're, we're, we're not st- we've been together 16 years. We're still not married. Let's say... Because part- <gasps> girlfriends... Can sounds- we have a wedding? Can we have a guilty feminist wedding? Can I officiate? Oh, God, I'd love you to. Well, I mean, let's... <gasps> Propose to her tonight. T- text her now. Oh. <laughs> call her, call her, call her. Okay, I'll do call it by text. Is that, is that... Oh, yeah, okay, WhatsApp, WhatsApp. WhatsApp, I'll WhatsApp because it. Will you, you marry me? Oh, my God, she's really doing it. This is There great. we go, I've done ah! it. So WhatsApp that, there we go. Um, oh. She will at some point message back, and I will read out her message, which will probably be, are you having a breakdown? <laughs> Well, the last text before that was hope the traffic isn't too bad, going to get a cab from Paddington. So she might think, she might think, oh, she's really, yeah, yeah. she's melted down. She's having a meltdown. Or she might think, this hey. is the very WhatsApp I've been waiting for. This is what she's wanted all her life. Do you I think, think she'll be... she, you know her, what's she most likely to say? Uh, what's, what's, what's the matter with you? L- what do you she's want? She's going to say lol. Would she say lol? No, she wouldn't say lol. She'd probably do a face. You know that, okay. that emoticon where the face looks all a bit scrunched up, like, like it's having a... It, it'll be that face or something. Like a, a seizure or that, emotion. Or that finger. <laughs> just, just the middle finger. I don't know. I think she's going to go, oh, my God, yes. She might call, which would be very exciting, and then you have to put on speakerphone, and then we have to see the... Oh, wouldn't it be great if she FaceTime? Uh, you haven't met my partner, She was down on one knee <laughs> saying, I also propose to you, this is the greatest night of my life. Um, I am so excited about this. But I have officiated... <laughs> Three weddings and two of the couples are still married. Okay, and the, so two out of three is actually very good. I think it's not about that. Well, the third one, they're really good friends and they co-parent very happily, and they all get together for the kids' birthdays and stuff. So I think that's a win because they're still they'll be partners in a way for life. Have they got other romantic partners? Yes. Okay. Does that need to affect my stats significantly? No. No, it's not right, acrimonious. That's now so if I marry sense. you, even if you split up, it won't be acrimonious based on the stats. Okay, that'd be great. But you may stay together for, I won't say forever, because we don't know how long the others... Well, it's been 16 years. I mean, what else are we going to do? That's the spirit. There we go. <laughs> that's the romance spirit. You've that's got what your, you want, that, isn't it? You've got your vows sorted there. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the opening. <laughs> It's been six years. Well, what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do, love? Do, and I do. Do you own real estate together? We have a love it. I love that you said real estate. Yes, we own a property. Uh, you but, have but a we house live in, in it. We live in it. Do you have a house in Brighton? Because I think that's a bigger home. commitment in a way. It's harder to get out of a real estate situation, oh, yeah. especially during COVID. We've got mortgage. Well, and also children. That's quite hard to get away from them as well. So, um. Well, although some of the, the most happy parents I know co-parent. I mean, most parents co-parent, obviously, but co-parent in separate houses. Because right. they, every second weekend they get brunch. 
Yeah, that brunch, a brunch, brunch does sound great, actually. So the, yeah. almost the only way I'd be happy to have children is with divorce. <laughs> yes. Okay. If Tom and I wow. split up, I'd be like, I'm much more open to it. Because he'd have them every other weekend. So you're going to split up before there are any kids involved and then get him in afterwards? I mean, I just think every other weekend sounds good, doesn't it? Like, because then you get one weekend where you go, oh, look, we're going to the park, all oh, lovely, lovely, lovely children things. Oh, isn't he sweet? He's just, oh, isn't she lovely? You know, aren't they beautiful? Whatever. Right. I don't know, I'm gendering my children, I, I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> They're hypothetical. But then every other weekend... You know, sex and brunch. Do you see what sex I'm saying? Sex and brunch. Wow. Brunch, brunch and Now I'm having sex with a somebody sl- I'm not in a relationship with at the moment, and a that's s- making me feel like I'm being unfaithful. A slow, comfortable brunch against a wall. A slow, <laughs> These are just suggestions for what you could be doing if you split up. Now, I feel like don't, that's don't, not don't, even I'm a I'm ruining the proposal. Has she texted right. back? Has she texted back? No. 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 Okay. <laughs> no, honestly, she might be considering what to say. Oh, God, I hope she doesn't say, actually, no. now you've said that, I was thinking about doing the other thing although brunch, holy moly I really hope not if she does split up with you now yeah. I've given you the gift of brunch every other weekend brunch up against the wall a slow okay, comfortable yeah. brunch against the wall have you had any response from your wife yet you to be can we Let's just have see, a little there's, a, there's no response but has there been a tick no blue ticks yet no blue ticks okay we should get our guests out Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Jessica Regan here, and I am delighted to be announcing our Big Speeches Winter Workshops. They're taking place on Saturday, November 27th, Sunday, November 28th, Saturday, December 11th, Sunday, December 12th, Saturday, January 15th, and Sunday, January 16th. All Saturday workshops are taking place from 10.30am to 2.30pm and all Sunday workshops are taking place from 3 to 7pm. So hopefully whatever part of the world you're in, there's a time slot there that suits you. We are keeping the workshops online as that makes them as accessible and inclusive as possible and we're all about that at The Guilty Feminist. So please go to guiltyfeminist.com forward slash big speeches to secure your place or indeed This could be a Christmas present for someone that you think might need a confidence boost. New year, new you, whatever your motivations, we will be delighted to see you there. Places do book out fast, so act now to avoid disappointment. And of course, as always, there are heavily subsidised places available. Dr. Rita Issa is an NHS doctor, public health academic and activist. Dr. Bob Gill is an NHS doctor campaigner and creator of the documentary The Great NHS Heist. Please welcome to the stage, Rita and Bob! Um, Rita, hello. Thank you so much for coming out, Dr. Rita. Thanks. And we really appreciate your time and also your extensive expertise. I'm sure you've got other things to be doing. Given, not really. Given, no, no. Okay, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And uh, Dr. Bob Gill, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. We're very, very excited to hear what you've got to say. And we're also going to be joined by somebody on the screen above. This is very exciting for us. This is the hybrid world we live in now. Wow. Um, our next guest is a comedian, speaker, actress, writer and active campaigner. Please welcome to the screen, Francesca Martinez. There she is. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. It's delightful to see you. Am I really big? 
You're massive. You am are. I like, am I like a wobbly god? <laughs> you are. You are. You're the size of a building. Excellent. There's, this is sort of like Godzilla Martinez, to be honest. Excellent. I'll take that. Uh, yeah, well, it, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take... A, a, oh, we can see you down here. So, actually, we're better off looking here. Yeah, because I Because the look cameras there. are this way. And so, if we turn around, Francesca can't see us. So, we're seeing you here. Hello, Francesca. Can you see Hello. us? No, I can't. I can just hear your lovely voices. Oh, yeah, you can't see us. In fact, I did get the memo about that. But don't worry, because I'm imagining you very beautiful and photoshopped. <laughs> Keep imagining us that way. I like yes. it. I, I think we won't send pictures. Um, we feel very f- privileged to have this episode tonight here at the Guilty Feminist because I think we're going to get some insights that we wouldn't otherwise have, um, and we really do need to know about. Um, so, first of all, I'm going to go to you, Bob. Um, can you give us? the privatisation overview. So for anyone who lives globally, the United Kingdom is very proud of its socialised medicine. And we've had that since about the 50s, and that was hard fought for, hard won. And uh, Americans are always so astounded that, you know, whatever we've got, we can go, we can get it seen to, a prescription is seven quid, and if you really can't afford it, the government will pay you prescriptions as well. Doesn't matter what kind of medication you want, it's seven quid. And if you need an operation, it's all there. So we don't have a history of privatised medicine in this country. Of course, we do have private medicine options like Bupa, but they have to be better than the NHS or no one would use them, and very few people do compared to our population. Only rich people, only the kind of people that run the country generally have Bupa or similar. (laughs) So, um, Bob, can you tell us what's going down with privatisation in this country? Sure. Uh, while I was uh, listening to you earlier, I was w- worried about drifting into mansplaining, so forgive me. No, Bob, we've specifically booked you to mansplain. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's, I should have said that in the bio. Dr. Bob is an NHS doctor, campaigner, and mansplainer. <laughs> who created the document. But you're not mansplaining, because mansplaining is telling us stuff that we already, we already know, know, as if we don't know it. You are just explaining because we don't know we, okay. what we want to know. So okay. you're invited here as an honoured guest, whatever you tell us. Unless you tell us, like, feminism is about equality for I'm not going to go there. It's best that you don't, Bob. It's best <laughs> that you don't. Stick to your expertise. So I will take you very quickly through what's been going on. It's taken several decades. It spans the political spectrum... In fact, uh, it closely follows my career. It started back in 1988. That's when I went to university. And that's when a document was produced by MPs Oliver Letwin and Jordan Redwood called Britain's Biggest Enterprise. This was commissioned by a right-wing think tank called the Centre for Policy Studies. And it set out how we would go from a publicly funded, publicly provided system to an American-style insurance system without anybody noticing. And, and it explicitly said, without anyone noticing? No, I put that bit in. Oh, OK. okay. <laughs> but it, but there was, that was the agenda, you think? That was the agenda. No thinking about it. They quite clearly put it in there. There were five steps, and this is how we're going to achieve it. But central to the plan was to keep it as quiet as possible, otherwise it'd be a significant public pushback. Um, 
And what they've, what they've actually achieved, I've explained this as running a marathon, the privatization marathon. They've done 25 miles, and now they've come back to the stadium. This is the final stretch. What they've achieved is introduced a market, a totally bogus market up until 2012, where you had the buying and selling of healthcare services within the NHS. They've installed a very bloated managerial structure, which sucks out a significant proportion of the healthcare cost. And they have set up the NHS assets to be stripped. And if I divide that up into three, you have the land and the property, you have the patient data, and of most interest now is the NHS budget. And while they've achieved so much, um, most of the staff and unfortunately most of the patients and the public have no idea because we're not being told. The NHS logo appears everywhere. We're still not paying when we access services, so it appears as if nothing has changed. The reality is that we're very close to finishing the job and what the current bill that we are here to try and raise your awareness about, what the current bill will do is essentially turn the NHS into a logo and a funding stream. The NHS will no longer be a provider. Everything will be outsourced. And the control of the budgets will be handed over to United Health and similar companies. That's America's biggest insurance company, private insurance company. And this bill is currently waiting to be turned into a law. Yeah, so it's, it's been through, it's had three readings in Parliament, it's been to the committee <coughs> stage. It will come back to Parliament. Why have we had absolute zero coverage in the main media, so sort of television and main sort of broadsheets, haven't even mm. touched on the fact that this bill is about to go through and what the impact will mean for every single person in this country? Is this a question for you, Rita? Yeah, so I, um, I called up a friend before the show who works in the media, and I said, why aren't you covering it? And he said that most of the stuff that's in the media is what is happening in government and the sort of battles that are happening in government, because that is what brings stuff to the forefront. And so there's something to be said about the lack of clear opposition from, from the opposition party. Surely not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, because really we need to be debating this quite publicly, and the fact that we're not, I think, should be very concerning. But then... I guess if we look at the government's and the media's track record over the pandemic, I mean, around the world, we are known as Plague Island. Um, we have the second highest... Is that highest... official nickname around the world? <laughs> official nickname. Plague Island. Plague Island. No. <laughs> we currently have the second highest rates of COVID in the world. And if you just read the UK media, you would think that we are doing absolutely fantastically. We have a vaccine scheme that has been rolled out to everybody and we are fighting this and we're on top of it all but actually media around the rest of the world is covering what's really happening and you would just have no idea that that was happening oh, you were telling so me backstage about this italian what was the italian headline oh yes yeah, so the italian headline was uh johnson and the tolerated death controversy that was an italian headline johnson last and the week. tolerated death controversy this is how we're seen we are embarrassing it's pretty embarrassing um, yeah so is it simply that labor aren't taking them to task for this bill? I think it's partly that. I think that the bill is really 
complicated and dense and quite difficult to understand. And I think there's definitely a vested interest from the government for people to not really know what is going on, because I think if people did know what was going on, then they would get angry about it and then there would be pushback and opposition to it. I understand that, um, having spoken to Francesca as well about this, um, how complex this is, and I... I misunderstood what was happening when Francesca first approached me and said, "This is, you know, I'm involved with this campaign." And I believe that what was actually happening was that the NHS was being sold to U.S. corporations. But that isn't what's happening. What is what is in fact happening at the moment? Yeah, selling is the wrong word. It's about handing over control. Mm-hmm. Uh, what these companies are interested in is holding the budgets. And how do insurance companies make money? They make money by denying care. This is a fundamental business plan. If anybody understands how the American system works, they pay out if you're straightforward and simple. As soon as you become complex and expensive, they look for reasons to dump you, and they have barriers to access. You pay out of pocket before your insurance policy kicks in. Now, all of these uh, financial arrangements prevent people from seeking help in a timely manner. Not only is it endemically fraudulent, it will cost twice as much either through taxation or as an individual. So we're getting a worse service which will cost more and lead to a lot of preventable harm and death. Now, that is not an easy sell for politicians, but that is exactly what they're enabling. But what's in it for them? <laughs> what's, what's, I mean, are they just Batman villains or... Is there something in it? What are they getting out of that? Well, just look at uh, what our former prime ministers have been doing. Tony Blair's done very well since his uh, tenure as prime minister. David Cameron recently got involved in this green seal scandal where he was helping a financier uh, enter into NHS financing and supporting the salary system within the NHS. Nick Clegg has got a very lucrative position on Facebook. So... No longer is politics a commitment, a principled occupation. It's just a career path to exploit and capitalise on it after you've left office, I'm afraid. For corrupt purposes. Because this particular cabinet, there's all these sort of, oh, it's, you know, Rishi Sunak's wife and it's, it's, it's Matt Hancock's brother-in-law and, you know, what, those might not be the exact right relatives, but I know that there have been scandal after scandal. <coughs> Francesca... Can you tell us about this campaign? Well, first of all, I have no medical qualifications whatsoever. <laughs> I'm just a wobbly comedian who loves the NHS. And I just want to start by saying why I love it. Because like millions, I grew up with it. It was a normal part of life. And I guess I was always complacent with that. And it was only when I started to travel that I realised, wow, what rare thing it was to how lucky we are to have it. Because most countries do not provide universal health care. So the idea that we provide that to everyone, regardless of status of money, is a pillar of a truly civilised society to me. And I'd like to remind us all that it's not free. We all fund the NHS. And that's a point that often gets forgotten, I think. Um, But I think that growing up with the knowledge that you and your family are able to access quality care whenever you need it, I think that really has a deep effect 
on what kind of society you create. And I think for me, it imbued me with a real peace of mind and also an expectation of a society that cares for all equally. So it definitely defined my wider political views with a deep belief in human rights and the healthcare is a commodity that shouldn't be bought or sold. So I think it is interesting to see that our government already commodified education. So it shifted that away from something we can all access to something that which can only be accessed by those who have money. So my fear is this, if the NHS is privatised, we will not only lose what was once the most efficient and affordable healthcare system in the world, we'll also erode the very fabric of our society. And my personal view is that I think the government wants to create a society where there is no social responsibility, no compassion, no support network, and most importantly of all, no expectation of help. I think it wants to mirror America, where if people fall on hard times, they're on your, they're just on their own. They're in a dog-eat-dog world where governments don't serve the majority, but serve the elite interests of their donors. And I heard recently that yearly poll in America showed that their number one concern for people is becoming ill. And I I have a friend in America who recently broke her hand, and she had no health insurance, so she was told to bandage it up and let it heal. Oh my God. So she lives in constant fear of getting ill or injured. And I think a really shocking fact is that the top cause of bankruptcy in America is medical bills. And most of those people have insurance. So that unease and despair and social isolation, that's coming here. And I think it's a normalisation of not being helped. I think that is the fundamental aim. That's what we're heading towards. And I think it's part of the climate, a political corrupt climate, if you want, where government policy is dictated by profit and not by human need. So I really am nervous that if the NHS goes, the welfare state will be next. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. If Thank- they manage to destroy our precious, beloved NHS, then everything will be up to grabs. And it's really important just to add that rich people won't be safe either. You know, don't sit at home thinking, it's all right, I have money. Because reports from America show that the wealthy are often heavily targeted and they're missold unnecessary treatments, which I think is appalling. Yeah, I remember seeing all of that played out in scrubs 
um, yeah. where they would they would try and get people to have these full body scans so that they could you know because there's something yeah. wrong with everybody you know and it was just to make people hypochondriacs and yeah well, well I think are you... simply the profit motive shouldn't be in healthcare I was clear last word about the campaign which you asked me about and I was forward I do want to say it's so important it's not only about saving our precious NHS it's about defining what kind of country we are because mm-hmm. the NHS is the embodiment of the idea that quality healthcare is a fundamental human right that everyone deserves and the idea that we collectively fund our care of each other is a beautiful one and should be fought for by all of us and the campaign- that, what do we become that, that, well said, well said, Jess. There's certainly a lot of support for that in the room, and I know that there will be when the podcast goes out. The campaign website is yournhsneedsyou.com, and it launches this Wednesday, the 27th of October. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it is correct. And there's five actions on there that you can take, including emailing your MP and lobbying them not to vote for this awful bill. Okay, so we'll all do the five actions. Yeah. Jen? Oh, yeah. What? Sorry, what? I'm going to do all of the actions. I just wanted to ask, Dr. Bob, one last... I wanted to ask you another question very quickly. Um, you've, got, you've got time. It doesn't have to be one last question. We've got oh, okay. plenty, plenty of time. Because, um, uh, again, this is... I'm getting all of this from Francesca. She's my oracle, but... She said to me that I should definitely ask you about renationalisation of the NHS would be the actual only way, because even if this bill is overturned, it doesn't mean that the NHS is safe, does it? No, because the private corporations are already embedded within the NHS. We need to pull out the market, which wastes at least 10% of the NHS budget every year. We need to undo the toxicity of private finance initiative debt, where the NHS estate has been saddled with very expensive, uh, unnecessary debt, which is being used as an excuse to flog off the land, right? This is a a premeditated financial collapse of the system, so that needs to be removed. And we need to get rid of this bloated management bureaucracy, which is purely required to run a market uh, and has no interest in delivering safe care. But, you know, one thing I, I want to mention is how do these companies make profit? We've already, we've already talked about the denial of care, but it's also about cutting costs. And one way they cut costs is to make sure that they have the cheapest staff, not the best qualified staff. Yeah. So you have a race to the bottom in terms of standards and in terms of numbers of staff. So you have unsafe staffing, unqualified people or less qualified people having to give you poor or second-rate care. And that does nothing for you as patients, and it does nothing for the healthcare giver who ends up suffering the moral injury of having to supervise neglect. So by, so what you're basically saying is that they're trying to make doctors less skilled than the doctors that we have at the moment. They're replacing them. They're replacing them with, yeah. the doc- with people that aren't as qualified as the yeah, people they that Yeah, because it's cheaper. Part of this bill is to deregulate the profession, so you no. don't need... You don't you need deregulate... Qualific- Doctors? No. They can't deregulate doctors. No. We? Well, they want, <laughs> they want to remove the requirement to have qualifications to deliver health. What? Yes. Are you what? kidding me? Who's going to do surgery, though? That's not, they can't do that. You cannot well, take a... 
I wouldn't put anything past them, right? So what they, what they want to achieve is, this is called de-skilling and task-shifting. It's how... Task-shifting, de-skilling. Yeah. Seriously, they're talking about this. They're saying, can we de-skill? What does this mean, though? Explain, please. Well, it means instead of having... Instead of seeing a doctor out of hours, which you used to, mm. now we have one one one, which is basically a school leaver looking at a computer screen, right? Now, that's going to be replicated across normal hours, GP service delivery. Have you noticed GPs are being scapegoated at the moment? Yeah, I have. This is no accident, right? So whenever you... We have now... We're in the phase of the managed decline of the NHS. We're quite deliberately... We're having reputational damage inflicted on the NHS. People's experience is getting worse and worse. And the government aren't going to say, well, this is our fault because we deliberately defunded it for 10 years. They're going to say it's the GP's fault. Oh, no. They're hiding from patients, and that's where we are. Yeah, that's... <coughs> Um, sort of what I want to come in on, which is to say that the NHS right now isn't perfect. And so when we say we need to be protecting our NHS, I understand a lot of my friends, a lot of my patients that I speak to say, well, I find it really difficult to get a GP appointment or I'm not getting the quality of care that I want. And I think that is part of the process of this managed decline because then it means that we start thinking, okay, well, the only option must be bringing in this private healthcare company. That is something that has been premeditated and planned. I think we went into the pandemic 40,000 nurses short. We spend less than half of what other comparable countries do on healthcare. We have half the number of hospital beds per capita. We're already in a state where the NHS is basically on its knees and it's only really being held together by the goodwill of the staff that are in it, really pulling their weight. And then the way that uh, the media and government respond is by scapegoating uh, very publicly it opens the way for privatizations and for alternative options to come through. But what I would say to everybody here and to everybody listening is that the first thing that we need to do is educate ourselves and know what's going on um, and then also hold our policymakers to account. Like Francesca said before, we are the ones who pay for the NHS. We are paying for a service out of our taxation. And when we pay for a service, we need to expect a certain standard of care. And if that means that you want to be able to speak to your GP or access certain medications or whatever else, that is for you to decide. Like, you are, you are the public that are paying for this. It is, it is your NHS, it's your service. And, yeah, we need to take back democratic control of it. I worry, though, about burnout for doctors and nurses because they're understaffed. I feel like we end up blaming the people that are there. It's a bit like... I had a headmaster who, on the last day of term every year, would be furious that half the kids hadn't turned up. So he would round up everyone who had turned up and put them on the parade ground, and he would shout at all of us, because this is a disgrace, how dare people... The school year ends when the school year ends, how dare people not turn up or not? We're the ones that have turned up. Why are you shouting at us? They can't hear it, they're not here. And I feel like this a bit with the NHS is that people say, well, this quality of care isn't good enough, and blah, 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 but you're shouting at someone who's turned up despite the fact that they haven't had a pay rise in 100 years and they're being overworked during a pandemic. How do we take care of our staff but also hold our government to account? Yeah, so there's um, a survey that was done by the British Medical Association um, and it found that over 50% of doctors have depression, anxiety, burnout, or uh, facing severe stress at work at the moment. It's half of the medical, of, of doctors. 
right now. And then um, a survey that was done by the Healthcare Workers Foundation found that three in four health professionals over the past 12 months have considered leaving the profession, which well, is the state that do, we're currently... We really are fucked up. Yeah, I mean, I, I know of two doctors who, are, who have left the NHS and wouldn't... Would, where have they gone? Uh, private. <laughs> but, but it's the same here, though, isn't it? Doesn't, doesn't everyone work who works privately work for the NHS as well? Yes, they generally do, don't they? Do generally, to maintain your sort of qualification, you need to stay... With the NHS. Partly in the yeah. NHS. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what we need to realise is the medical staff and the patient's interests are wholly aligned, right? You know, as taxpayers, as patients, we do not want tired, underpaid, demotivated, burnt-out staff. Would you want a surgeon to operate on you who isn't well-supported, isn't properly qualified, yeah, and is looking for a way out? Or would you want somebody who is rested, competent, and able to deliver safe surgery? I'll take the rested, competent one, please. Right, so, <laughs> so we, we need to know and realise we're on the same side. It's the politicians who are against us and the corporations they are serving. It's really hard us. to get that message across. And I think post-pandemic and everything that's going on with environmental, you know, with COP26 is about to happen, I think people are overwhelmed overwhelmed with the amount of horror that we're faced with mm. globally you know we've got the refugee crisis we've got a, an environmental crisis we've got that's why they're bringing in so many bills at the same time we have to fight the policing bill exactly the policing the, bill the, 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 the they're pumping sewage into the bill. sea yeah it's just we've it's, got brexit look it's too much and i think when i talk to people and i've spoke to a lot of people about this campaign and i've said you know let's all get involved let's try and do stuff a lot of people are 100% behind it and go, tell me what to do and I will do it. But there is a percentage of people who I think are like-minded, who are like, it's too late. What's the point? It's done. And you know what? I'm knackered. You know? So what can we do to challenge people's apathy and encourage people to get involved? And is there any realistic way of stopping this bill, given there's a huge Tory majority? Like, seriously, how hopeful are you? And I don't even want to ask that. I just want to pretend you're super hopeful. <laughs> But I need to know the truth. I'm, I'm really feeling like I need the truth here. I'll maybe answer the first bit and I'll let Bob answer the second bit. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, Nye Bevan, who founded the NHS, said, um, the NHS will last as long as there's folk with the faith left to fight for it. And um, reading over that quote again, it got me thinking, like, what makes me fight for things? It's when I feel like there's an injustice that's happened um, when I feel like my boundaries have been crossed. And I think that that government has done this across the board. It's not just about the NHS. So I think if we stop seeing issues as being separate and start seeing them as sort of linked up, actually that's a way that we can bolster ourselves and bolster our movements and work together in collaboration across climate, the refugee crisis, the policing bill, and healthcare. I think there's ways that we can collaborate around it. I mean, if we just think about the amount of corruption that's happened during during the pandemic billions of pounds paid to uh, conservative mps friends and family members nurses having to use food banks old people being treated without dignity tens of thousands of excess deaths like if we allow ourselves to feel those things of course how can we feel anything but angry and that's being done in our country in our name um but we just need to find the energy and the, I think the communities to be able to come together and fight 
around it. We just need to all come out onto the streets. Like, the whole country needs to come out and stand Stop in front clapping. of number 10. That's what I'm saying. I was going to ask you, did you enjoy the clap, though? That was for both of you. Did you enjoy it when we came out and applauded on I, Thursday? I shed a solitary tear. Mi- mixed emotions. <laughs> it was good to see the outpouring of public support. Uh, <coughs> it wasn't so good to see Boris Johnson clapping because that was cynical. They know what they're doing to the health service, yet they pretend to love the, yeah. the NHS. But uh, in terms of optimism, no social advance was achieved by everybody being despondent and sitting on their backsides, right? So if you want to let the system go downhill, end up paying more for something that is unreliable and unsafe, sit back and relax. If you want to prevent that happening, then you need to become active because you were never granted any right by the top. It came from the bottom. And you have to be part of the bottom-up awakening and say, not in our name. Everything you've mentioned there is an assault on democracy, Well, what bigger assault on democracy is there than the theft of your health service? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can I just bring... Um, Francesca in, just uh, again, just quickly. Um, Chess, you um, uh, have put a, a flame up my bottom. Um, and um, That's probably a private matter, Jen. We're talking yeah. about the NHS. I, oh, I God, I'm so sorry. I totally I, I, agree I'm just, not to mention that. I know, I'm so, <laughs> so sorry. I keep conflating the two things. Uh, anyway, um, sorry, let's get back on track. Okay, I won't bring up my bottom again. Um, and uh, I wish you could see her Anne Boleyn shirt, Francesca. Chess, don't. If Francesca saw this shirt, she'd laugh in my face. Okay. Um, but you've got me fired up and, uh, and you've got me involved in this campaign and I, I appear to have spent the last two weeks doing nothing else. Um, so you can do... What, what would you say to people, Chess? What are you, you going to say to get people listening to the podcast and people in the, in the audience today, tonight, to get us rallied around and get together? Well, I think Rita was bang on when she said all these problems that we face are joined up. They have one cause, and that is a political system that is corrupt and that serves the interests of an elite minority rather than the majority. So it places short-term corporate profit above human need and our planet. And that is why we're facing such a crisis environmentally, socially. So it's very important to realise that there is really one cause, and that is that our current um, people in power, our lawmakers, are not serving us. They are serving the interests of their donors. And their donors have corporate interests. 
And the number one aim is to increase profit. And if we don't take a stance against this, we're going to see every aspect of our lives corrupted by the profit motive. So I think it's highly vital that we realise that apathy only serves a powerful. Every human right we enjoy today was won by people who had hope, by people who believed in better. Um, I just also want to add that I think one of the reasons there's been media silence on this issue is because the interests of our corporate media overlap with the interests of the privatisation lobby. And if you look at the Tory party, one of their main sources of money is the private healthcare lobby. So we have many MPs with actually personal financial financial interest in this area. So when you do a bit of digging, it does become very obvious why this is happening. It's happening because it's making a few powerful people very rich. So, so what can we do, Francesca? What, can, what, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Because I well, feel like very angry and very motivated, but they've got a big majority. What is it that we can be doing? Yeah. We can write to our MP... And what well, else? you can go to the website and take the five actions which are clearly listed. But I think in the broader sense, it's very important to, to try and engage with alternative media. So shifting away from the mainstream narrative, which so often just confirms corporate interests. And, and beyond that, like Bob said, um, don't let them take your hope. Because if they take our hope, we have no chance of change. And if you look throughout history, um, every human right we do enjoy today was won by people who kept hope, who believe in better. And when you spoke before about feeling overwhelmed, you know, all the bills, the sewage, the police bills, that's, a, that's an overt tactic. Yeah, and to make us feel powerless. So I think it's very important that Rita talked about building communities, and so often modern life tries to make us all feel like there is no society and we're all separate um, economic units. But that's bollocks, and COVID has shown us what bollocks that is. We are all interconnected. We are all dependent on each other. There are no vulnerable people. We're all vulnerable in certain situations. So we need to realise our common humanity, and only in numbers will we ever achieve anything. So we've got to come together and embrace our common humanity. Thank you so much, Francesca. Thank you, Chess. Um, Bob, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? No, I think uh, we covered it. It's up to you lot. Now you know what's going on. You, okay. I've empowered you, we've informed um, you. And Anything uh, you'd like to plug? Uh, yeah, so if you, if you go onto YouTube, I've made a film which explains this in a lot more detail. It's an hour and a half. Please watch it. 
It's called the Great The Great NHS Heist. NHS Heist. Arm yourself with the information to combat the propaganda that is being foisted upon us. The more of us that are informed, we can produce an army of people who are putting the correct uh, the truth out there, right? So we need more help to put the truth out there. Everyone should watch that uh, as soon as possible tonight. I know Succession's on. It's is more important. Yeah, Francesca's getting excited about Succession, but this is oh, more yeah. important. I'm excited. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I am very excited. I might watch Succession first, but then I'll definitely watch the great NHS. Okay, get back to what we're talking about. Sorry, okay. sorry, sorry. Um, Can I just say a huge thank you for um, inviting us on and covering this topic? We all really appreciate it. Well, we are that sort of non-mainstream media, sort of weird other outlet that people listen to. That you know, we we're not in the we're not in the corporate pocket. Um, So I think we have to be we have to be responsible. Also, Jen's very persuasive. I am. She calls me all the time now. I used to be the one calling Jen, going, "Oh, can you come and do this? You know, this choose love fundraiser or whatever." And she has realised it's time for payback. So she calls me and goes, "I've got a thing on. Can you find some famous people to sign this letter? Slash, can we come and do a guilty feminist?" And I'm so delighted um, because you know it's it's great. You know, when somebody I love and trust is bringing me stuff. And what an amazing panel for us tonight. I have one I have one action actually people can do. Um, a big part of our launch is um, we've got loads of amazing people, including your good self, doing videos for us. But oh, shit, I done my video what yet. Yeah. we want is we want the public to film videos saying what the NHS yes. means to them. And share their own stories and plug the website because that is the only way this is going to go viral and have a chance of creating that traction and that mass movement. Great. So can everyone get their phones out now? And you need to make, because this website's going live on Wednesday, so you need to make a note. Um, you have to make a video saying why why you love the NHS, the NH- how the NHS has been there for you, and now you're going to be there for the NHS. Yeah. Um, uh, you need the NHS, the NHS needs you, etc. Um, yeah. And the website that you're going to plug is What's there any hashtags as well to add? Well, if your NHS needs you and all the info about what we're looking for in videos are okay. or is on the website. Any social media tags or is it all directing to the back to the... Well, um, we are just thinking of your NHS needs you because we're very boring people, really. Okay, great. Um, all right. Um, so your yeah. NHS needs you. Um, and, you know, you can tag in these guys, tag in the Guilty Feminist if you want. If you don't want to make a video, make just a tweet about what the, how the NHS has been there for you. But ideally, we could, if all of us did a video on Wednesday, that would start to make it go because then other people go, oh, I want to do that. And oh, then I want talk to, get to your friends, your mates, your family members, people you know, you're like, oh, I know so-and-so that's really politically active. Or I know so-and-so that's really into the NHS, whatever. Just contact them and just say, listen, I'm sticking up a video. Will you retweet it? If you, some people might not be comfortable putting up a video, but they might want to retweet it or favorite it or or share a story or share a post or share a feed or whatever the hell's going on i don't know i understand social media but um that is the most TikTok. important thing you TikTok. could do a tick tock ticket you could reel it you could you could spiel it i don't know what you people do just get on the old social chat it you could chat snap it you could do whatever you want 
And then what we want to do is on Wednesday and for the next few weeks, we just want every time you put you look at your phone. Oh, up it comes. Because we're responsible. We're the obnoxious person like me is going blah 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 blah. Think of yourself as the as as a as a broadsheet. And you we collectively we can be a broadsheet, we can be we can be a television network. Rita, is there anything you came to say you didn't get to say? Uh, I just, I mentioned before a survey that was done by an organisation called the Healthcare Workers Foundation. They were set up during COVID and they are providing therapy, childcare services, um, care packages to uh, NHS and care staff. Um, And uh, if you're that way inclined, check them out. They're really great. What are they called? The Healthcare Workers Foundation. And we can donate directly to them? Great, yeah. we'll oh, do. I'm, it's sad that we are donating. I know. Just, why don't they just I agree. fucking fund it properly and like overfund it? <laughs> well, we've just heard why, actually. No, so. I know, I know. No, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I'm so ideologically opposed, I still can't really Same. understand Same, I'm with you, Deborah. I'm with you. Which is um, why we're doing this bloody yeah. thing. Should we should start our own, um, I mean, you know, I just I feel like, well, I, can't, I just want to start our own political party, really. I'm in. Please do. Okay, all right. Um, uh, listen... This has been such a privilege and a pleasure to have you here. I feel like we're probably going to need a second episode at some point. But we do, I think we'll agree, have to fight this. The point has been made, even if you're sitting at home listening, thinking, oh, I'm quite wealthy, I'm probably going to be fine. You're not, because it's going to be like that American system where they they fleece you, they bounce you around, your provider still is looking for ways to save the shareholder and deny you care. It doesn't actually matter how rich you are. Germs don't care how rich you are. We've discovered that in the pandemic. They don't give a fuck. Viruses do not care about how wealthy you are, what school you went to. They will come and get you. And if the only doctors available to you are overworked, underskilled, under-resourced, and costing you an arm and a leg, then you are absolutely screwed especially if you've just lost your arm and leg in an accident because yeah, there'll be no one yeah, to stitch it back no, on no way this sounds like bad news now but the good news is we're all going to get together uh, could i have a big big round of applause for dr bob gill <laughs> dr rita isak <laughs> francesca martinez <laughs> the incredible jen Prestop. Now, we've got to edit this bit into the last episode um, because otherwise it's not going to make any sense. Um, But I'm now going to ask you, uh, Jen, what did your girlfriend slash partner say to you? Uh, We are all waiting for the big revelation. You said, will you marry me? She said, (gasps) what? Of course. Point out, though. Oh my god! Wait, wait. Oh my god! Deborah, wait. Oh my god! <laughs> All right. She tried to show me in the hall, and I went, no, no, show me on stage. It'd be funny. Because I thought she, she showed it to me in such a casual way, I thought it must be like a lol type thing. And I said, no, no, it'd be funnier on stage. I, she said, of course, she, you've proposed. Yeah, but I'm a feminist, but I've made Jen Brister do a really heteronormative thing <laughs> and propose <laughs> to her partner of so, 16 years. Yeah, so. I just want to point out that it was what at uh, 8.36? Then nothing. And then nothing. Because you didn't get and back. Then, and then at 8.38, of course. So it wasn't what, of course. It was what? 
Oh, of course. No! It was... What? Oh, and then when you didn't reply, she thought, oh, I've upset her. Of course, yes, of course. You so have really you called her? Have you called her? her? Can you call her now? Can you call her now? Can you call her now? Can you call I'm her not going to call her now. Can you call her now? Can you call her now? Please call her now. Oh, can't you call her now? Because she thinks she that you proposed She will to. fucking kill me. Okay, I am going to... All right, here we go. Yeah, okay. <laughs> on speaker. Hello, love. Oh, hi. Uh, you're currently on The Guilty Feminist. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, uh, the reason why is because um, you may have noticed I proposed to you in a text. Yes. <laughs> and that was Deborah's fault. And you said, of course. Did, did, yep. Yeah. Are you yep. going to get married now? Are you, are you overwhelmed with love for me right now? <laughs> no, I'm a bit freaked out, to be <gasps> Can I officiate, please? Can, I, can Deborah officiate the wedding? I've done three, and two are still married, and one are still friends. <laughs> oh, uh, is that a good hit rate? <laughs> yeah, two out of three, but all of them are speaking to each other, and that's hard in marriage. That's a bonus. Of course, of course. <gasps> right, okay, we've got it. So, we're going to have a guilty feminist wedding. Uh, start planning. Okay, bye, 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 bye. <laughs> oh my God. You heard it here. Congratulations. But, what are you going to wear? I will probably wear this blouse, actually. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm the, going for an Edwardian look. An Edwardian. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I feel very happy about this. Have you ever talked about getting married before? This has just never come up. Uh, I don't know. We probably talked about it a couple of times and then didn't do anything about it. I mean, just know that now she'll have said yes and we, nothing I've, happened. Well, I don't know it will because I'm going to chase it up. I'm going to have a guilty feminist wedding. <laughs> I, 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 can I, I'm going to officiate and I'm going to make you both say I'm a feminist, but um, I'm going to chip in and help pay for the booze because I think it's my fault that it's happened. Right, let me get back on the phone. Hang on. <laughs> You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Jen Brister, and our very special guests, Francesca Martinez, Dr. Rita Issa, and Dr. Bob Gill. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Sedinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe Becker and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. to today, you were wearing a very stylish polka dot blouse, and I can absolutely see you turning all sorts of... <laughs> were you here all along, Jen? I've literally just arrived. So what we're doing, the way I'm busking... You were busking great, and I didn't yeah. want to break your flow. No, the way I'm busking is to act for very small acts of feminism. As well as producing podcasts and live comedy shows, our company, The Spontaneity Shop, also works with people in business, helping them with their communication skills. Together with the producer of The Guilty Feminist, him from Best Pick himself, it's Tom Selinsky, and our third partner, who you don't know, but you are going to love, Alex McLaren. We've been helping people to present better, build stronger relationships, make more diverse and inclusive environments, that's generally me, and make their voices heard. Now we're bringing some of those insights, ideas, and questions to you in the form of a podcast. It's what we do best. I'm thrilled to announce that our new show, You Can Talk to Anyone, will be starting on Monday the 8th of November. And you can hear me, Tom, and Alex 
talking about what's in store right now. Uh, hello, Deborah. Hello, Alex. And hello, Tom. Hi there. Um, so I'm I'm Alex, as you know. And um, are we podcasting? We are. Yes. Uh, I've been podcasting for a while. This is your first opportunity. <laughs> Deborah, of course, is the podcast queen. <laughs> oh, let's not let's not exaggerate. Empress. So as it's you, more appropriate. Uh, as you know, you uh, here. I am not exactly kicking and screaming, but um, uh, I like talking in rooms with people, and uh, today we're doing that, which is great. Um, I want to really talk about what it means to talk together, and I thought a great way of kicking off would just be for us to talk about um, the first time, first conversation we ever had. And I wonder if you can even remember it. Oh, I can. I can remember it really well. I can remember the occasion, certainly. Do you remember the, do you remember the first conversation? Yes. Go yes, I it. can. So we were doing a comedy improvisation show. And by we, I mean Tom and me with our comedy improv group, uh, The Spontaneity Shop. That's the origin of the name. And Alex had just graduated from Oxford and turned up, well, actually, I think he'd no, I think he'd graduated from Oxford and then Bristol Old Vic Drama School. That's right. And he turned up, watched the show, and clearly had enjoyed the show and not just slunk off into the night thinking, I don't want anything to do with these guys. Uh, but I think maybe... If he must have been on form. Yeah, I think maybe he'd heard that we were good at improvising or had an improvisation company he might be interested in joining. And he approached us afterwards in the pub downstairs. It was the Canal Cafe in London. Yeah, it was. And we were talking to a man called Piers Torday, who was now a children's author, but at that time was running The Pleasance, a venue in Edinburgh, a very famous venue in Edinburgh. And so we were trying to get a slot from him. Piers and Alex had been to Oxford University together. And so when Alex came over with his CV saying, I'm very interested in joining your your group or learning improvisation from you and being involved in this outfit... (laughs) Uh, he said, oh, hello, Piers. And they said, oh, remember the days. And we thought, well, we definitely want Piers to like us because we, we need a slot at the Edinburgh Festival. And so we must, of course, uh, include this old drinking buddy of Piers's. And see, I don't think I'd even put all that together at the time. Obviously, I've heard the story since, but I'm pretty sure that when I was first introduced to Alex, I thought you were, you'd come with Piers yeah. and you were also somebody important from a big Edinburgh venue that I needed to impress and be specially nice to. Yeah. Well, I often, if it's not too rude of me to say, pick up on the finer details of the relationships between people. That is not inaccurate. No. So I assessed very quickly what was going on here. And it was the fact that Alex had his literal CV in mm, his hand. That was a clue. That was a clue. Yeah, that but I was true. like, this guy really wants to be part of us. Now, I thought that made us look good because if one of Piers' friends is sitting there going, I'd love to be in this in this group. I, could you teach me what you know? Could you include me in the shows? Then clearly this is a show worth taking to the Edinburgh Festival. Now, uh, listeners, I need to tell you that we were not offered a slot from Piers Torte. Now Which I blame who, you for, Alex. Yeah, I take all the hit. Though. Yeah, Piers is doing very well. I went to see a play of his a couple of Christmases ago. Uh, but uh, he did not offer us a slot, despite the clear 
old school tie bonding that was that was that was going was on. Uh, but we did end up with the wonderful Alex McLaren in our lives. What was your take on joining us that night? Tell us the story from your point of view. So, well, it's, it, I'm always I love this. This is a little bit like when you hear husbands and wives talk about their own perspectives <laughs> yes. on how they met, and I feel it's very like that. Um, so, I did bring my CV to a. Sp- an improvisation show and I'd never, I didn't never heard of you and I didn't know um, your names. I don't think I contacted you in advance because I don't even think I had an email address at the time. So you just turned up to the show? No. Uh, (laughs) I needed a good reason to meet up with somebody who I'd been going out with and I wanted to give her her clothes back. And so she and I met and went to the theatre together. Oh, this was an ex-girlfriend? Yeah. And you Um, had a bag of things that she'd left in your flat? (laughs) But the point is... I had no idea about this. Tell me more. Um, And and now, now that you mention it, I remember that Piers was there. I'm so sorry, Piers. But I also remember... Now, am I wrong about this? Wasn't Henrietta Finch there as well, who is now a very famous producer who runs the Donmar Warehouse? Ooh, maybe. What was Henrietta doing there? Was she working for the Pleasants at the time? She, she was agenting and she's a, a, a pal of... Um, uh, she was working for Mark Berlin, who did end up being your agent, I remember. Oh, my God, yes. So <gasps> no. She introduced us to Mark Berlin and so, got us... That our first agent. I think so. I, th- that may be the connection. So I'm going to have to check with Henny now. <laughs> um, but but the uh, but and weirdly that's what I that was the connection because I kn- I know Henny better than I know Piers. Although we were all at college together. Um, and I did take my CV because I just read a book about improvisation and one of the formats in it was Guerrilla Theatre for Keith Johnston, and your show Guerrilla Theatre was in Time Out. And I think one reason why I got excited about your show. Now, unusually, I think, I then subsequently discovered you weren't hosting it, Deborah. Philippa Waller was. You were playing. I think we pretty much took it in turns, actually. That I might think, have been. I think it was shared out pretty yeah. evenly. Okay. Before we started doing the Dream Date format. And the yes. Dream Date format. And then that Dream Date, it was then you and me hosting, and then it pretty quickly became you hosting, Deborah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, then that's when I wanted to transition into stand-up, because yeah. I realised I like talking to the audience this a is... lot more than I like to pretending to be characters. And I just got to the point where I was like, it seems <laughs> undignified when you're, at, when you're out of your 20s to be pretending to be a 12-year-old boy or a dog. Well, I just was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, age, I'm aging out of this silliness, but I love talking to the audience and I loved that lively yes. feel. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a comic. Well, this is very much an origin myth for everybody. <laughs> but, but the, also, particularly for what we're talking about today, because but I remember the show and I remember it, and this is not by any means a criticism. It was not slick. Um, and I'd seen at the time oh, I was, was doing... Absolutely. No, I know, <laughs> it, I know was, it was. It was. <laughs> I know it was. And, and I remember, but I remember seeing Carefully actors. cultivated lack of slickness. Yeah, <laughs> but so often when I was seeing improv shows, I think I was seeing really actually just marginal variations within a very, very slick format. And so I didn't really see people taking the risk of going out and not really knowing what was what choices they were about to make. It was actually very well... Um, well that's making fixed. me miss improv now. Yeah, no, How happy much? days. But that vulnerability. <laughs> I mean, a little bit, you know, um, that, that moment of not going yes, out and well, really not knowing. But but no, I, th- I don't think you miss that because I think actually one of part of what makes um, uh, performers exciting to watch is that they are doing something new like. And, uh, and so I, that was what was exciting to me and why not only did I want to be in the show with the performers, I wanted to get to know you. And so it's almost like I met you before I sat down and had a conversation with you. Because, and I think that's something that performers will often experience is that people know them before they know the people. 
And why was it important that Philip Waller was hosting? Philip Waller, by the way, who also now works in great genius, yeah, and has a forty human being, forty human being. Yeah. Uh, why was it important to, for you to remember that? Well, because now I've worked with you two for twenty years, and I feel like it's uh, it's me and you two and our gang. And in fact, there were I suppose maybe the first people I saw were Philippa, Chris Harvey, John, hello Chris, um, uh, and. Uh, People like Gary Jacqueline Haig, Gary Turner, all those other performers as well. Um, but the, uh, I suppose the, the tone was set by you two because it was your show. Um, and so that, that openness and that vulnerability was really, really important. And I think it's something that happens when people connect with friends. And so you do not need to be a performer or a comedian in order for those dimensions to really feature mm. in the way you communicate with others and the way they communicate with you. And you quickly became a huge asset to us, both I'm as sure. a performing company and then also because we were doing a lot of teaching. And mm. teaching is something which some people who are brilliant practitioners can also do. And it's something that some brilliant practitioners struggle with. Mm. I've often said I think it's very difficult to be taught by a genius because typically geniuses have no empathy. They can't understand why it's not just as easy for you as it is for them. PE teachers. <laughs> oh, yes, maths all, teachers. Well, PE teachers were always good at sport at school, and that's why they became PE yeah. teachers, but they don't Courageous understand sport. children who are uncoordinated, who are not fast at running, and who don't enjoy it. And so they tend to get rather cross and think you're not making an effort. When, in my case, well, I wasn't making an effort, but that's because I hated it and was no good at anything. So I think that, uh, that that's right, that sometimes if you have to learn something by rote, you're a better teacher. But you, Alex, actually, I think, mm. took to improvisation very easily, at least from my perspective, as somebody helping you through that, but also immediately became very, very good at conceptualising it for other people. Well, that's interesting. I, I think the reason why it came... It came relatively quickly to me and certainly not completely um, is that so much of uh, Keith Johnson's approach which was the school we were all schooled in and via Patty Styles, is that it actually faces the fear um, and I am interested in how uh, taking fear away makes people better at things mm. makes them able to be their authentic selves and yet we can't live in a world in which that is entirely taken from us at least that's not yet happened to me um, there's always something and um, and, uh, and we often have to function in our working lives or we have to, in which we're under pressure and we're dealing with anxieties and we're dealing with targets we've got to hit and maybe even people with whom we don't have the strongest kind of relationship. Uh, maybe we are given tasks to do in terms of connecting with people which aren't, uh, we wouldn't necessarily choose for fun. Um, but that is something we all have to tangle with. Um, and I, I, I think that at work particularly, there is fear which is invisible because it's so universal. And uh, so I'm really interested in actually at the moment looking at the intricacies of it all because we've had some time now where we haven't been able to be together and, uh, and talk about the kind of the challenges that we face in communicating. Um, and I think in that time I've really been missing it and thinking about what it is that I miss um, and also noticing which dimensions of my own uh, instinct, experience and talent are actually transferable into other formats like the Zoom work we're doing, which we've been getting sort of, you know, very, very positive responses from. Um, and I'm interested in actually asking more intricate, detailed questions than we have time to in our everyday training sessions when we're actually tackling uh, clients' problems specific 
particular challenges rather than actually looking at the problems behind those challenges. So I haven't looked at any of your prep, Alex, and I know you've yes. been thinking about this quite deeply. Can you give me some kind of insight into things we might be discussing in future episodes? Because I'll be one of the discussers. Yeah. So I'm very intrigued. I mean, in some ways I want it to be a surprise, yeah. but in some ways I'd like... like a, Christmas. Yes. In some ways I'd like, I'd like to know what's... Just the sh- the shape and feel of you know when you feel your presence just before Christmas <laughs> yeah, when you're yeah, 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 go yeah. could that be a PlayStation is this the shape of the new dress that I wanted or whatever it is so could you yes. give me could you let me feel your presence absolutely I feel away it's basically it's going to be short we're thinking something about twenty five thirty minutes um, and what we're going to do is each week we'll look at a, just one question about the nature of communicating and talking to other people so it might be about uh, making a first impression, first time you meet somebody and our feelings around that. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. So it seems. Um, we'll be talking about uh, what happens when we go too far, when we cross a line and we feel like, oh no, we only realise afterwards that we socially screwed up. What can we do about that? As well as what can we do to anticipate that challenge? Uh, I want to look at the the different kinds of people that we engage with and the, and which kind of person we are. I'm interested in introversion as well as extroversion. And I'm interested in exploring what that concept means mm. and what it means for when we're communicating with others. And I want to look as well at what happens in different environments. Why is it that some people, if you put them on a stage in a big venue, some people absolutely come alive mm. uh, and other people, the majority, I would say, of people diminish and they are a bit overawed by the experience that they can't do their best. They're much more effective one-on-one. Why some people actively prefer Zoom interactions to being physically present with people yep. and other people feel almost like uh, they're having to uh, you know, juggle with one hand behind their back. Mm. And can I add to that? I'd love to hear from some different guests because some of my closest friends, because I'm a stand-up comedian, mm. are extremely introverted stand-up comics yep. who, if you put them on the stage at the London Palladium mm. or even the O2, they will have the time of their lives communicating with thousands yep. of people at once. Mm. Then you try and chat to them in the bar and they're looking at their shoes, they're awkward, and you try and say, that was a fantastic set. Oh, no, 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 don't. It, yes. They love the applause, yes. but they don't want you to look them in the eye and tell them you're a great comedian. Yes. Uh, What's I, that about? Well, it, well, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, and, and in fact, it's, it's interesting to me because one actually thing which is interesting is how do we communicate with people that we do know as well as people we don't? And I want to explore the fact that I'm basically a kind of, somebody recently said to me, I don't switch on until I'm in a room with people. Um, and that's true. Um, but my partner Zoe's not like that at all. She uh, likes company and she's great company, but it uses her up in a different kind of way. So she would probably put it that she's an introvert and I'm an extrovert. And I find that exciting that we're, people who can be so different from each other can want to be with each other more than anybody else on earth. And that is part of what I want to explore, variety. Similarly, I get my energy from other people and that's how I recharge my batteries. And then mm. I need some time alone to process that. Tom absolutely can only be yeah. on charge if he's alone. If he's, yeah, I, maybe if I'm there, that's fine. But we, he doesn't have to talk. He's not, he doesn't have to be on. Yes. Yeah, I'm the Zoe. Yeah, no, no, it's yeah. true. I remember. But you're, but you're good with people, Tom. Yes. But yeah. you're good at a dinner party. But at one of those free form parties, we just have to wander around talking to people with a drink. Tom's, Tom will last half an hour. And and then go once, Alex. This is true. I had to. I had to. You know what I'm going to say, Tom. Yes. We went to a friend's wedding, and 
It was the music was extremely loud. He was very fond of the bride and groom, but didn't know anyone else. I was not having a good time. And after a while, he said, "Do you know I'm really not coping at all? I'm just going to have to go." I've said my pleasantries to the bride and groom. I've wished them well. I, I'm not enjoying talking to other people here, and the music's really too loud. And I said, "You can't go. You've only just got here." And he said, "I'm I'm going to have to." I said, "Bride, okay, don't say goodbye. I will just pretend you're here." <laughs> and I'll cover for you. And every time the bride, who absolutely loves Tom, and she calls him Tom Numbo because it's a <laughs> running joke about Columbo, every time she came by in you know, the dancing or whatever and said, where's Tom Lumbo? And I'd go, oh, he's just over there. He's and then I'd there. point to another man with dark hair. And she'd go, oh, I must go over and say hello. And then, of course, she'd get waylaid yes. because she was the bride. A couple of times I said he'd gone outside with the smokers because he needed fresh air. Which he, it was freezing cold. It was snowing. It was actually snowing. He didn't. But every time I just made, I just would point in a direction. There he is. And then, you know, um, I maintained that Tom was there for hours. I left yes. at 11 and said, oh, I think Tom's just gone ahead of me to the station to just make sure we... Which I had, by two and a half hours. Yes, yes. indeed. <laughs> but that is, I have had to cover for Tom because I didn't want the bride to get hurt feelings. No. I have since... Be- because that bride is no longer married to that groom, I have since felt it was okay one night after we'd had a few drinks to reveal this to her. To she thought it was it. absolutely yeah. hilarious. Yeah. But that's what I find fascinating about this, that somebody will look at someone like you, Alex, mm. and they'll see you very socially adept, very confident, and they mm-hmm. won't know what is the situation that is your kryptonite that will push your buttons. And I think yes. some people often say the same thing about me. It was interesting when I had a brief flirtation with doing close-up magic, mm. that an anxiety and nervousness that I hadn't experienced for years right. suddenly came back. Yes. Because when I'm on stage, whether it's do- talking at a conference or mm. doing an improv show or anything like that, I'm on very familiar ground. But yeah. when you're doing a magic trick, you'll either do it right and it will be successfully fooling mm. or you'll screw it up and everyone will see straight through you. Yes. And that put a lot of extra tension and my hands were literally trembling as a result. Yeah, it's funny. I, mean, I get very anxious when there's no when, when I need to almost extract myself from the performance. So reading in church at funerals makes my knees knock because that's not a, not a time for grandstanding, mm. except in some cases. It, it all depends on who's in the box. But... If I die, I want you to grandstand away, Alex. I, I want you, a big performance. If you die. <laughs> It's in doubt. Of course okay, if. all right, yes. all right. If I die before you, Alex, ah, and you, you are able to attend the funeral. Yeah, yeah. Well, even if even if I go first, I promise I'll be there to read at your funeral. <laughs> okay, that's um, worrying. No. That's scary. No, it's funny, but what, you're, what Tom's saying about what goes on behind a confident front is really important because I cannot speak for everybody, but so many times when you talk to people who seem powerful, they don't feel powerful. When you talk to somebody who makes it look easy, they don't. it doesn't feel easy. They're actually incredibly busy inside and and so there are I think that that sharing of different perspectives on this is really important when I say you can talk to anyone I think that's true but it doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be the same way for everybody so I'm not fixing broken people I'm really interested in what it is that makes it possible for people to connect with each other and I think I believe it's possible for everybody I'm really looking forward to this podcast. This is one of those podcasts that I'm helping to make because I want to listen to it. <laughs> Good. Uh, it's going to be fun. Um, and uh, well, there'll be once a week. Um, please come and check in and engage as much as you can. Thank you very much, guys, for I, coming to play. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to delving into this subject more. And also, strangely, I think I might be going to learn more about both one of my oldest friends and work colleagues and my husband. <laughs> 
the producer of The Guilty Feminist. I mean, I, I've, I've already learned things from this conversation. There is no doubt you will. Thanks, guys. See you next week. See you next week. The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.